Well, good morning, Anthem Church. Uh, as Brandon said, my name is Matt. I am the teaching and equipping uh, pastor here, and uh, I just want to say also a quick uh, to the culture. It's so good to see some of your faces for the first time since like May or whenever it was. And um, told the first service, you know, I'm uh, I'm happy to see your faces. I am sad to see the parking spaces downtown disappear. Um, but nonetheless, we are excited to have you back. So welcome back. I look forward to connecting with you guys and and whatnot. And so. Uh, it's, it's exciting time of year, and, and one of the things with this exciting time of year, as things kind of get going in the fall, every year we pause for two weeks, uh, just kind of take a time out from our summer series before we start our fall, which we'll be going back into the Gospel of John, which we left off uh, last spring, and we'll be in the Gospel of John for the year. But we take two weeks where we focus on our mission as a church and our vision as a church. What are the things that are most important? Who are we as a church? And, and that difference between mission and vision, just to make it clear, uh, a mission statement essentially defines why do we exist? What do we do day to day? Why are we here? What's that once and forever purpose for us as a church? And, and then vision, next week that we'll look at is, what does it look like over this next season in our life as a church? What's kind of that, that vision for the next five to seven years that we feel God has, has placed on us? In other words, where are we headed as we accomplish our mission every day and doing that same, the same things every day towards that vision? And, and so that's what we'll be looking at these two weeks. And the reason why we just uh, read, if you didn't know, it's called the Great Commission from Matthew 28. We believe that the mission of the church has actually already been defined by Jesus uh, for us. It's called the Great Commission because he's saying that it's the shared mission that you as the church have under my authority as the Lord of heaven and earth. So the church already has a mission, and our mission statement is just essentially distilling what Jesus says in the Great Commission. So our mission statement as a church is to help people know, love, and obey Jesus. And, and I'm going to come back to defining that. What do we mean by that? How does that connect with the Great, great Commission? But here's what I want to say at the, at the get-go. You may have missed it because we're reading a chunk of Scripture during the Scripture reading, that this comes right at the end of Matthew's gospel. So the context, this is right after Jesus has risen from the grave and he's resurrected, and this is right before he then ascends to the Father's right hand where now he is reigning uh, and, and, and on the throne next to the Father. And so this is right, this is in other words, the last words that Jesus says before he departs from his ministry here on earth. And, and one of the things, if you know, last words are really significant. Last words are something that are, are like, if I only have so many words to say before I go somewhere, they are, I'm going to use, say exactly what I, the most meaningful thing I could say, the most important thing, the priority thing. If, if I knew that I only had moments or minutes left with my children, right, and I knew I, knew I was going to die or whatnot, and I had, a, I had five minutes with my children, you better believe those are going to be very focused words and things I'm going to be saying to them. It matters, these last words. In fact, uh, just to hit home how uh, we know this intuitively, I, I experienced the opposite of it when uh, my father was, was, was dying. Both of my parents actually unfortunately died when they were younger. And, and so when I'm at, my, I'm at my father's deathbed, and I remember my brother and I are there, and you know how when, when, when somebody's dying, there's usually kind of they come to, and then they kind of fade out. And, and we thought this might be the last time he comes to, and we really have a chance to talk to him. So I'm waiting. You know, it's like these are going to be dad's last words. 
There was a little bit of that moment where you realize, like my brother and talked about, like what we actually had even had this conversation, like what do you think he'll say, right? And my dad was kind of a humorous guy and whatnot. And, and, <laughs> and so he kind of, he comes to, and then finally he goes, come here, come here. And so we, we, we draw near, you know, and could barely, he could barely speak. And he goes, you need to know that you will probably have an enlarged prostate. <laughs> and I excuse me, what was that? <laughs> and he goes, make sure you get that checked. And then he went, Ugh. And he went back to sleep. And I remember I was like, no, 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 no. Those are not the, that's not your sign off, dad, right? So I was like, no, no, no. And finally, uh, thankfully, my dad kind of wakes up and he's like, I love you. Like, he kind of came to, we had that interaction. But I thought for like a minute, I was like, was that it? Was that his sign off? Were those his last words to us? And we realized we were disappointed in that moment because it's like, that can't, I mean, it's important. Men, get your prostate checked, right? And get the checkup. But aside from that PSA, that is not the most important thing that you want to hear in that moment, right? And so you know it's disappointing because something significant is meant to be said in that moment. And what Jesus does here is he says the most significant things for us right? And it's not Jesus' famous last words like they would be for us. It's actually the famous first words of the beginning of the last age of humanity, of the last age of life on this earth before Jesus' kingdom comes again. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to tell you the most significant things to focus on as my people until I come again. And so what we'll be looking at today is how our mission statement is distilled around Jesus' great commission, why that is, and, uh, and how it gives focus to what we do. So we're going to look at first, what does it mean? What does our mission statement mean? Why then does it matter? And, and specifically, why does it matter today? Jesus said these things 2,000 years ago. Why do they matter today? Is that just something Jesus said then, but we should update it, do kind of, you know, Great Commission 2.0? Or why does it matter today? And then third, how do we do it? How do we as a church go about trying, trying to practically help people know, love, and obey Jesus? So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, uh, Lord, we thank you that we are not just left to our own devices to try to figure out how to focus ourselves as a church. We're not le left just to, to fight and divide over this, to just make it about following any of one man or woman, that it's not just about following any ideology, but Lord, it's about focusing and following Jesus and knowing you. And so, Lord, would you help us to grasp the importance of this? Help us to grasp, yet at the same time, how simple that is, but on the other hand, how easy it is to deviate from it and how easily other things come in. And Lord, help us just to see walking away from here, what might be the next steps for us here in our own lives in order to take steps towards knowing and loving and obeying Jesus in deeper ways. And so, Lord, would you guide our time in Jesus' name, amen. Well, our mission statement, here's the thing. Our mission statement is meant to keep the main thing, the plain thing, and the plain thing, the main thing. So notice that it says our focus first is on Jesus. We, we, we exist as a church to know, love, and obey Jesus Christ. Now, I, I, hopefully it goes without saying, but that means our mission is not to know, love, and obey just some ideology. It's not just to know, love, and obey some kind of church tradition. It's not to know, love, and obey some pastor or the leadership of Anthem. It's not to know, love, and obey just some kind of theological, tribal expression. It's meant to be we know, love, and obey Jesus. And why is that? Because Jesus must be the focus if we are to have life. Churches so easily drift from keeping Jesus as their North Star, and they begin to deviate after all these things that are, are 
some of them good things, but we deviate after secondary things, and then we get off path and we drift in our mission. And all kinds of problems occur at that point. But why does Jesus say this, and why do we have Jesus as the focus? We have Jesus as the focus, and the reason why Jesus says to come to him throughout Scripture is because he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. We focus on Jesus because Jesus says, I am where life is found. I am where joy is found. If you deviate from me and you look for anything else, what happens is your, your heart's going to be enslaved to those things. You're going to miss out on the life that I have come to give you in myself. And so what this is overall is Jesus is saying, I'm calling you to follow me. And so a term that you've probably heard, this, this is often the Great Commission is used to define discipleship. So discipleship, in other words, is at our core as a church. And discipleship just means literally to follow someone. And Jesus is saying, I want you to learn to follow me, to learn to live life in me and in following me. And so Jesus is the North Star that we follow. In fact, one of the best ways I've ever heard discipleship defined was when somebody said, discipleship is just merely apprenticeship in becoming truly human. That ultimately what Jesus is saying is, I'm the creator, I made you to know me. I, you were placed in the garden, humanity, in order to walk with God, to know God. But that was ruptured, and now I've come so that might be restored, and you might have life in me. So come and follow me. I will teach you what it means to be made in the image of God, what you were designed for, what you were made for. And if you come to me, you will find that. You will find that. And so what Jesus does here when he gives us this commissioning is it's, it's easy to read it and hear it as something that I don't know how else to put it, but we can kind of compartmentalize. So sometimes we think of discipleship and what Jesus is going to say here in the Great Commission as something that kind of happens, let's say, just on Sundays, or it's just something that we do and like we do a class every now and then, or it's just kind of like a program that we do, or maybe we, we read this as something like international missions, right? Like over there on the map, we go to the nations and that's, that's when people do the Great Commission. But outside of that, then I'm kind of like time out on the Great Commission. This is something we opt in and out of in different times of our life. Am I, in other words, what does the Great Commission have to do with my work? What does the Great Commission have to do with my parenting? What does the Great Commission have to do with my, my marriage? What does the Great Commission have to do with going to school and trying to get into that major? And what, and here's the key that doesn't come out so clearly in the English text to the fact that Jesus intends for us to read the Great Commission as something that's all-encompassing of every moment of our lives. Because when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, then he says, go therefore. That go is actually a participle in the Greek. In other words, not to get too grammatical, I know everyone falls asleep when you start talking about grammar, but the participle, you know, the ing words, right? Like going. So actually, a more literal translation would be, as you are going, as you're going about your life, as you're going into the city, as you're going into your neighborhood, as you're going into the cubicle, as you're going into the classroom, as you're going about your, your work, as you're going about mowing your lawn, whatever it is that you are going about as you are going in all of life, in every moment of life, you are meant to be living through this lens, through this grid, with this reality of my commissioning of you. So this isn't something we opt in and out of that's just kind of like, you know, super Christians do this every now and then. This is the all-encompassing, totalizing framework that Jesus wants us to live in. And Jesus says it permeates everything. As you are going, wherever you are going, every place you go, in every relationship, this is meant to be the way in which you live. And so what does this look like? And this is why our mission statement, again, is, is framed around the Great Commission. So how does, how does that come together? Like tangibly, what does that mean? 
Well, let me just parallel some of these phrases. So we say we want to help people know, love, and obey Jesus. And Jesus says to go and make disciples. Merely what we're saying by help people to know Jesus and to love Jesus and to obey Jesus is to say that our main focus is to help people become disciples of Jesus, to help people discover Jesus, to help you and I and with one another to know Jesus and to come to Jesus, to find Him as the focus of their life. And then as we learn to do that, then we're able to turn to others and help them do the same. And again, why is that? Because Jesus is saying, the whole focus of life is to know me, to walk with me. And so that's the reason why that is our primary calling as a church, to make disciples, to help others take hold of Jesus. Now, how do we do that? Well, first is no. And there'll be a progression here, you'll see, but no. And that equals the teaching them. Jesus says, be teaching them. Be teaching them truth. You know, one of the things that I've always found interesting about Jesus as you read his words in the Gospels is Jesus will often not only stay, hey, uh, this is the thing, he'll say something like this, verily, verily, I say to you, right? Truly, truly, I say to you. And then he tells you a truth, find life in me, follow me, things like that. But then also Jesus will come back a little bit later and he'll say, I say to you, I do not mean this. In other words, Jesus will say both the true thing, then Jesus will make explicit what is the negative or the opposite or the thing not to do. In other words, Jesus is very careful to make clear that there is truth and there are lies. And what Jesus is saying here is that we should both know the true things of who God is and what he's created us for and how we can know him. And then also in the midst of teaching, we also have to be able to sort that out from falsehood and from lies that can drive our lives because they'll ruin our lives. And so earlier on in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 4, which if you want to read and kind of look at and marinate on or meditate on, what is this whole discipleship thing? I highly recommend you read Matthew 4 and just walk through it. It's when Jesus first calls his disciples, when his ministry begins. And in Matthew 4, 17, Jesus comes to the disciples and he cries out, he says, repent and believe. Come to me. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is near. And so what does Jesus do there? He's making the truth of who we are, of the fact that there's something in our hearts that has gone off, that's rebelling against God, that's trying to find life where it can't find life. And he's saying, see, here's the thing. Repentance just means literally to turn. So here's the picture here, because we think of repentance, and you're like, oh, here goes the pastor, fire and brimstone, repentance, that bad word, right? It just sounds, oh, it's so gritty and mean or something like that. But here's what repentance is. Repentance is actually turning from death to life. And so what he's saying is oftentimes our lives are lived going after something that actually will not satisfy us in the way we think it will. And oftentimes it's because that thing is making promises to us, saying that it can be our Savior, making claims about what it can provide for our lives, and we'll come back to this dynamic, that actually it can't do. It's writing checks it can't cash. And oftentimes we'll run after that thing, and what Jesus says is, listen, first thing you must do, you must know, teach them, know this, that often in our lives we find ourselves running from life into death, into the arms of death, and instead turn, and he says, Repent and believe, turn and come to me, find life in me. And then Jesus says, after that, then it looks like things in your life will change. Because then he goes on in Matthew 4, 
19, and he says, come, follow me, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. In other words, an easy way to think about a disciple is he says, come, come to me. We come to Jesus. He's the life. He's the one who we believe in, and we trust in him. We believe his words. We, we trust what he says about the future. We trust what he says and has revealed about God himself, and we come to him. We choose to follow him, to stake our life in the path he's set before us. But then also, so a disciple is someone who follows Jesus, but then he says, come to me, I will make you fishers of men. A disciple is also someone who's transformed. He makes us something. So God will change us. There is something that God will winnow away. There are things in us that will have to change, things that will have to die off, things that will be strengthened, but God will change us. And then how does he do that? He says, by making you fishers of men. It's often on accepting the mission and the calling of God where God does his most profound work in us. And so a disciple is someone who merely comes to Jesus, is changed by Jesus, and follows Jesus on his mission. And so Jesus is saying, teach them these basic truths, make these truths known, that this is where life is actually found because it's found in knowing me. Now also then, it's a, we say we help people know, but then also love, to also love. Now what do we mean by to love Jesus? Well, Jesus goes on in verse 20 to say, behold I am with you, even into the ends of the age. That includes today. In other words, what Jesus is saying there is, I'm with you, and it's not a threat, it's a promise, okay? What Jesus is saying is, you were meant to know God. You were meant to walk with God. In fact, and, and here's the thing about Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel has so many rich threads in it, in the narrative, and they all kind of come together actually here at the Great Commission. You could spend hours just on this text. But one of the major threads that happens is that at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, you, you may remember like during like Christmas time, where there's like 17 verses where it begins the book of Matthew, where it just goes into a genealogy. And I know when you're like reading through the Bible, you probably read that and you go, why in the world is that included there? Well, it's actually doing something very significant, signaling something very significant. See, it's signaling as it re recounts the generations of the Old Testament that throughout those generations, something had gone wrong. See, it actually is saying that throughout the generations, there's death and there's death and there's death, and it's recounting the tragedy through the names, and it's recalling the stories of what had happened. Because God had created man to walk with him in the garden, and ever since then, when the genealogy starts with man, death had entered to the world. And what happened after the garden, when man is separated from God, God removes him from his presence in the garden when man was with God. And, man, and God removes man, and he sends him out of the garden where he's removed from God's presence, but he's sent with God's promises. And throughout the Old Testament, these promises are further revealed and kind of fulfilled. And you see this in different ways that it occurs throughout the Old Testament until you get to the New Testament when there's still this question, which is how can we really still though? We get there's promises, but how will we have the presence of God? How will we return to that reality that God made us for to walk with him? to know him. And what happens at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, it says, it signals, throughout time, we have been waiting through generations and through this tragedy. And God has been promising in the midst of it, throughout those ups and downs of our history, that one day there will be one who will come who will return us to the presence of God. And this is why when it gets through the recounting of the genealogies, it gets to Jesus, and then Jesus does not die. And then a few verses later, what does it say? He is Emmanuel. God with us. 
As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God have found their yes and their amen in Jesus Christ. They found their, their amen in Him. In other words, all those promises, all the anticipation, all the waiting, God, how can we know you? How can we draw near to you? How can we find the reason that we were created? How can we rediscover this? And Jesus enters the stage and He says, the whole thing that your soul longs for is to return to the presence of God, to know him, to experience his love for you, and I pour it out in plenty. Friends, it is such a waste as a church if we skip over loving God. The whole point is not just to get busy with doing stuff and serving the whole point is that we would know him and we would love him and the love of God would shed abroad in our hearts and we would have that joy that we would then share with one another. So we know, we love, and then we obey. Jesus says to observe all that I've commanded. If you know God and you know God in Jesus Christ, how God has, Jesus has come, the very Beloved Son of God, come into the world to lay down His life so that we might be freed from our sin and we might be reconciled to God and have life in Him. In the midst of it, when you hear that, then you can't help but love Him when you realize the significance of that, of what God has done to reconcile us and bring us back to Him. And in the midst of it, then, if you know Him in that way and you love Him, what actually overflows from it is obedience. It's the same way that like my, my children, my, when you have a loving father, like my children, when I say, hey, come with me, and I take their hand, they take my hand and they follow because they know, I'm, they know how I love them. They know how I sacrifice for them, and they walk with me, and they know me, and they just trust and they follow. In fact, this is why Augustine, uh, who's a fourth century church father, he once said, he, he overstayed a little bit, but he really intended it. He said, really what the secret of the Christian life is, is that you would know God and you would love him, and if you love him, then do as you please. In other words, if you know God and you really know him as your father and you know what he's done, the love of God compels you to follow and you live a life of obedience. In other words, you, our mission statement could almost be know love. We help people know love and enjoy God because as we find joy in God in Jesus Christ, what happens is that obedience naturally follows because we understand why and it just comes out of us. And God made us for that, to walk with him, to come back into that relationship with him, and to experience that delight that God has in himself. And Jesus invites us to follow him, to know him, to love him, to obey him. And this is why then Jesus, which parallels when he says, and the name baptized them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why does Jesus say that? What, what, is that just, you know, mechanical instructions for baptism, right? We happen to be a Baptist church, so we believe in baptism. A lot of Sundays you're going to see baptisms up here. Is Jesus just saying, make sure you baptize? I'm like, oh, I almost forgot that step, right? And so now it's just everyone's like, where you became a Christian? Well, I just get baptized. Why? I don't know. Jesus said so, right? What's the significance of it? It's really mind-blowing when you read Scripture and you see the significance of baptism and what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying the whole point of this is that we would return to the reality that we lost in the fall. The reality that we've lost in our sin. See, at the baptism of Jesus, also recorded in all the Gospels, Jesus goes down into, he, he, he's baptized and he goes down into the waters of judgment. And it's meant to symbolize what happens in our sin is that we would go down into the waters of judgment and then we would perish in the grave. 
But what happens is Jesus goes down into the waters of judgment, and Jesus then rises up immediately from the waters, and the Father proclaims from the heavens as the Spirit descends like a dove, like the whole band's back together, right? And they're all there, and the Spirit's descending, and the Father's proclaiming, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And what we get for the first time since the Old Testament, since creation, is this picture of God, the Holy Trinity, showing up and saying, just as I created this world as an overflow of my delight in myself, and I invited you and hardwired you as humanity with the capacity to know me and delight in me and worship and live in my presence. So now in this one, I am restoring you. And Jesus is saying, baptize them in that reality. And when we're baptized, it says, if you go down into the grave, without him, you stay. But in the name of Jesus Christ, you rise from the grave. And now that reality of the Father declaring, when I see you, you are my child and I delight in you. Jesus is saying, that is the reality I'm inviting you back into through myself. Don't miss how profound what Jesus is saying here is. And I know I even feel that as I'm trying to express this, like how can you put this into words? What's happening here? Do you guys realize this is, this is the mystery of the universe? This is the mystery of everything we've been looking for. And this is the reason why it still matters today. Point number two, why it matters today. There's, uh, I think, one of the greatest prophets of our age, if you want to call him that, is Bob Dylan. Uh, and so Bob Dylan, he said once, he just said simply, everybody's got to serve somebody. Everybody's got to serve somebody. And there's a lot of truth to that because we tend to think that, no, actually, it's not a question of if I will serve something or someone, some ideology, some truth, somebody's kind of program for life. It's not a question of if I can live autonomously from that, if I can avoid it, and I can just create my own. No, what he's saying is so true, which is you are, it's not a question of if, but what or who. You will serve something or someone. You will build your life on it. You will plug your significance into something. And the question is, will it fulfill its promises to you or will it fail you? Everybody's got to serve someone. And what Jesus is saying here is if you serve anything other than me, if you seek life in anything other than me, it will eventually fail you. And it doesn't matter if you're, you know, Old Testament Israelite. It doesn't matter if you're some Germanic tribesman around like 1200. It doesn't matter if you're, you're a, a tech mobile today. It doesn't matter. This is a reality that's, it's not a bug. It is a feature of being made in the image of God, being a creature made by a creator. We long for him until we find him our hearts will be restless. And Jesus is saying the way back to God to be plugged back into him is me. You know, just to lay out this dynamic, uh, <laughs> it was like two years ago or so. I remember one day I, I, I uh, used like a trimmer, like electric trimmer to shave my face, which clearly I've not gotten to this week. And I usually trim it short. I don't like clean shave. And so I, I sometimes will like shave, and then my wife hates it if I have like, you know, like I'll walk out with like a Fu Manchu or something like that, and I'll just walk around like, and she'll just be like, ah, oh, get And so one day I, I shave it, and I have just that little stash that's someone from history, that no one does that stash for a reason now, right? And so I, I, I trim down, and I just walk around the house like nothing happened, right? Just to see the response, right? So I'm just walking around, I go to the breakfast table, and she's sitting there, she's like, no. <laughs> like, right, well, you gotta, and I'm like, ha, 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 you know? And um, she's like, no, it's not funny. Go shave. So in between, though, I'm just walking around the house like that for a little bit. In between, I, at some point, I go back. It's like a few minutes before I go back to shave it off and then go about my day because I had to get to some meetings. The power goes out. 
okay? So I, I go back to get the trimmer, and it's like, okay, joke's over, and the power goes out in the entire house, and I realize I don't have any power for my electric trimmer, and I've got to get to these meetings, and I can't go like this, right? So what, what I realized in that moment is if whatever you plug into runs out of power, if it fails you, it's all over, right? If whatever you're plugging your life into, if the power source for your life is something that isn't Jesus, if it's the ultimate thing that you find meaning, that you find truth, that you find hope, that you find significance, that you find affection and affirmation, what Jesus is saying is this is one of the most profound realities of human life. If you plug into anything other than me as your ultimate source for that, it will fail you. And I'm, I'm into my 30s now, and I'm, I'm realizing as I get older, like, this is so incredibly true. Man, if you, if you plug your meaning of life and your hope, your sense of peace, significance, in, into just your career, whatever stuff you can buy, if you plug it into your bank account, if you plug it into whatever, you know, conquering that field, going from your major and into, you know, grad school and, and eventually conquering something, or if you put it into your physical attraction, if you ultimately find that significance and that's where you ultimately plug into for meaning, then eventually, as remember, as David Foster Wallace, he wrote Infinite Jest, he did a, a, a Kenyan college commencement speech, I think around 2006, he said this, he said, if you plug your life into these things, he, he was talking especially about physical attraction, he said, you will die a thousand deaths before they finally bury you. Because the reality is that nothing in this world is meant to be the place where we plug in our life. We plug in that, where we find purpose. To give us that deep sense that everything, I would just say a deep sense that everything's all right, that we're enough, to put it in modern language. And what Jesus is saying is eventually don't plug into those things because eventually the career will end. And, and, and eventually you, you might not get into the major and, or you just might not ascend what you thought or your body may break down. Like if you put your hope in these things, what Jesus is saying is these are all good things. In fact, I would say if you know, love, and obey Jesus and you're plugging into Jesus at your ultimate, I think you're going to be better at your career. I think your career is going to go far. I think you're going to be more successful. I think you'll be filled with integrity in how you do business dealings. I think that how your life is going to be more in a stable place and over time that is going to lead to more probably financial stability. Like I think those things on the whole usually are true. Jesus is not saying these things are not important. What Jesus is saying though is if you don't plug into me as the ultimate thing and you mistake these secondary things for me, then ultimately it will fail you this matters today more than ever because we are created in the image of God just as humanity has throughout all of time and we're made to be reconciled to our creator and find life in him. And by God's grace, and he has come to make it available to us. Now, I know as I say this, because we talk about this being something I've said, you know, we help one another and we help others. And and I know that with some of this, you might be saying, how would I help others find this reality? Like, by, by what authority could I go to someone else and I could actually say, hey, this is who Jesus is. This is who he revealed himself to be. You have to repent and believe. And, you know, you start saying, you're like, how, what authority could I say? In fact, you say, if I'm honest, like, listen, if I'm honest, my, my, life, my life is a mess still. I'm still figuring all this out. I don't know all these theological truths. I don't know the Bible inside and out. I've got a lot of stuff I'm still working out. I still got sin patterns that I'm fighting. I've, I'm, I don't got it all together. I'm not perfect. I don't. And Jesus says, good, you get it. 
See, see, the whole point of the Great Commission is Jesus is saying it's not meant to be that we go out into the world and we, we just present ourselves. Look at me. Just be like me. Parrot what I do. But Jesus is saying, no, you get it because you don't got it because I've got it. Jesus is saying, ultimately, by the authority of heaven and earth, because I am the one who created all the heavens and the earth, think about the significance of what Jesus is saying here. How can he say he has that authority because he says, I created it all. And now I've come and I've come into this dumpster fire. I've come into the mess and I've come in order so that I would be consumed so you would not be consumed. And to restore it so that you might come back into my presence and might actually not just not, just not be under the judgment of sin, but also to be declared righteous and a child of God and to delight in that reality and walk with me and know me. So Jesus invites us to this, and Jesus does it because he wants us to find life. He says, if you know you and love and obey me in deeper and deeper ways throughout your life, you will find life. Men, if you want to learn what it means to be a man, to be a husband, to be a dad, Jesus says, come to me. Women, if you want to learn what it means to be a woman, if you want to learn what it means to be a wife, if you want to learn what it means to be a mother, Jesus says, come to me. If you want to learn what it means to overcome addiction, if, it, if you want to learn what it means to actually be able to step aside from entanglement, like romantic entanglements where you keep getting into seeking the affirmation of that guy or that girl, Jesus says, you want to find freedom? Come to me because I will not scam you. My love will hold true. Jesus is saying, come to me wherever you are. And I would say that this morning, friends, wherever you are. Listen, one of the things I love here is that Jesus actually, I know we didn't have it in the scripture reading text, but if you go back to verse 17, it says, when they saw him, imagine this, I don't know if you've ever caught this, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, I don't know about you, but I find a lot of hope in that, and some doubted. Because I know that right now, I, I find this some days I'm one and the other. Some seasons I'm in like a place where it's like, I, like a sense, like I'm following Jesus. I'm worshiping Jesus. Like, let's go. Let's sprint, right? Some of you are there this morning. And then also we have seasons in the downs where some of you might this morning be in a place where you're going, man, this is really hard to believe and I'm filled with doubt. And what Jesus says in the midst of it is you need to know that the authority of this is not your authority. It's not how much you can just gin up the experience of it and the emotional experience of it, but the authority here is what I have accomplished in myself. And so take hold of the truth of what I am saying. And in the midst of the doubts, learn to doubt the doubts and speak to them, which is actually something we're going to look at in a few weeks from now in John's gospel. But take hold of who I am and know that I am enough. I am sufficient. Bring wherever you are this morning, whatever happened last night, whatever happened last week, whatever thing you've been trying to hide in the closet and buried deep down under the floorboards, whatever imagery you want, bring it to Jesus. He says, come to me, even you who doubt. I'll make you new. I'll give you life. So how do we do it as a church? I mean, what I mean is, like, practically, how do we help people know, love, and obey Jesus? And then how do we, after we learn with one another, how do we help others beyond that? And again, I just want to say again, everything that we try to do as a church is to focus on Jesus. And I, I know that's just easy thing to say, but we mean it. And, and we, we know that at the end of the day, we can't, we can't compel you, force you, 
to follow Jesus. We can't compel you. As Paul says, Apollos planted, I watered, God provides the growth. We can't compel you. We can't make things happen, but here's what we can do. We can't, one, we can be compelling. <laughs> and then the other way that the imagery we've had is that our goal as a church is to help just pack kindling around your life and help you do that with your kids, help you do that with your roommates, help you do that in your workplace, and pack kindling around so that when the fire of God comes, when God moves in his spirit, it burns. The worst thing we can do is in the midst of it, we go, I don't feel God, I don't, I don't sense this happening. And in the midst of it, we don't do the work every day of packing that kindling of how can I take steps to know and love and obey Jesus. And then when God comes with his fire, then it's got plenty to burn. And so our job as a church, you could say, is to help you pack kindling and equip you to be able to do that and do that with one another's lives and do that in the lives of those around us. Now, and this is for the purpose of having holistically, holistically following Jesus, because notice the progression. It says that, you know, we would know Jesus and then love Jesus, and then out of that, we would obey him. We don't want to lose any of those. In fact, if we know Jesus and we obey him, but we do not have love, then what happens is we fall into pharisaicalism. If we know Jesus and we obey him, but we don't have love, then we fall into just this works righteousness, right? Proving I know all the truth, I'm able to accomplish it, I'm able to do it, so guess who saves me? Me. Right? It easily comes in. Pharisaicalism, saving ourselves by our own righteousness. But then also we have, if you know God and you or know Jesus, love Jesus, but you do not have obedience, then we just become a fruitless tree. We become its sentimentality. It's just this abstract idea of, yep, I love Jesus, I, I, and, and he's good, and God's grace, and all that, but then we don't actually tangibly follow Jesus, and it becomes sentimentality. It's unrooted from everyday life, and eventually it just becomes this abstract idea, and it becomes all work, or all words, no action, no fruit. Then also we can love and obey but not have knowledge, and what happens when we do that is just we become open to deception. It's not firmly rooted in truth, and it can just be whatever someone says, you should do this, this moral code, this thing now, this is popular today, do this, and it just sets us on a course for deception and just whiplash constantly. This is why in Scripture it says that if you don't have basic truth, then you'll just be like tossed on the waves. You need something to anchor us. So we want knowledge of Jesus, love increasing and obedience. That's discipleship. That's discipleship. Uh, I've shared this before, but I had a friend. The reason why this is important, where it really hit me, I was actually going into school to become a pastor. It's called seminary. Um, and we both worked in uh, uh, Starbucks at a coffee shop. And I remember I was serving. I was a barista. He was a barista. And we, somebody walked away one day, and the name was Paul Buttersworth. Doesn't that just... That name, Buttersworth. Um, but anyways, Paul comes over, puts his hand kind of like this. You know like that meme, that Willy Wonka meme or whatever, Gene Wilder? It's like smiling at you. And uh, he kind of had that look on his face. And he just goes, Matt, you know, you, you're really good at the theology stuff. You're not very good at loving others. And I told him to shut his mouth. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, and he went on, thankfully, as a good friend. And we all need friends like this. Right? Friends that don't just enable us in sin, but friends that are willing. Cause, and there was a whole context of friendship there. Don't do this to a stranger, please. Uh, but he, he said to me, you know, I've noticed that like, there's just been this with your wife. I was young in my marriage. 
You're so good at like the intellectual stuff and you can just fire it out there and all that and you'll flatten people with it. But I haven't seen this grace. When was the last time you even with somebody like people would walk away from the counter, I'd nee, 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 right? And he's like, how about you actually thought about what's going on in their life and tried to bring him to Jesus? Do you have a concern for him? Or do you just want to like beat him up with knowledge? And what I realized in that moment was that somehow the discipleship had not been holistic. It's kind of like one muscle. Another imagery we use that anthem is like you're, you're at the gym and there's a guy who's like, yeah, right? And he's like doing lifting arm weights. And, and then he walks out from like, and you're like, wow, that guy's like stacked. Then he walks out from behind the bench and he's got like these little pencil legs, right? Because all he's doing is arm lifts. And it's like, dude, stop skipping leg day, Right? Like, because it's disproportionate. And what Jesus wants is for there to be proportionate growth, holistic growth, to know me, and then that leading to increasing love and that increasingly leading to obedience. Not just one or the other. We're meant to grow in all. And so we as a church have a passion to help you grow holistically. And so you will see as a church how we practically do this, and this is where I'll land the plane, is we practically have, literally we talk of rhythms, as we think about the schedule, as we think about the things we do, we are thinking about how can we make sure we're balancing out both avenues for gaining knowledge, avenues for growing in love, and avenues and context for that, and avenues for walking in obedience and learning further obedience. So some of the opportunities here as a church for knowledge, we increasingly, obviously on Sunday mornings, we're going to try to make sure everything is clearly from God's Word. We anchor in God's word, not my word, not another teacher up here's word. It's God's word. We want to clearly expound it as best we can. And we want to point you to Jesus through God's word. And we also, though, want you, Sundays are not enough. You're meant to feed on God's word. But I remember I was walking as a Christian for a couple years, and I'd hear people say, you know, read your Bible. And I'd be like, "Uh uh-huh, right? Because you don't like, people are like, read your Bible, and you're like, no, right? You know what you're supposed to say. But then I'd walk away, and I'd try to read the Bible. I was like, I don't know how to do this. And no one has ever shown me. And I think it's one of the biggest travesties in the church that we so often, the number one command we usually hear is be in the Bible, and then no one ever sits down with pen to paper and teaches us how. So from that developed, um, have a burden for the church to be able to put pen to paper and study the Word of God. So um, we have something called Bible workshops. And so this fall, we'll be rolling those out. And so we'll be looking this fall. It's the first two weekends in October. I know it'll be during one of the the, um, services. If you're wondering right now, hey, I want to grow my knowledge of God, and I'm, I'm kind of in that place where I don't know how to jump into God's Word. Because we're going to be in the Gospel of John, I'm specifically going to be focusing on the genre of the Gospels. How do I read the Gospels? What do I do with these parables? How do I make sense of this? Why is this dialogue here? Why does Jesus say that? We're going to try to jump in and together, through over two Sundays, work through basic skills on how to read the Gospels. And there will be other genres. We'll go through the New Testament letters. We'll go through Old Testament. We'll go through prophecy. We'll go through Revelation, all kinds of different genres over time. But we're going to start with the Gospels because we'll be in the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings. Um, but the thing is, take advantage of these opportunities as they begin to come up. My time is being able to be allocated more and more towards equipping, and there are others in this body who are gifted in that as well, and we want to help you grow in your knowledge, whether it's theological, skills-based, spiritual disciplines, whatnot. Take advantage of those. Another one, parents. Uh, I think it's October 16th. Um, it's not up yet online, but it will be marked that date that evening from 4 to 7. We are going to have something for the first time ever called a parenting forum. And that's one where we are going to um, be talking about all the things related to parenting. My working title that I think they're trying to keep it from going to is How to Parent in a Secular Age. How is everything hypersexualized in a secular age? And Sex, Screens, and Schooling. 
and having roundtables and forming discussion. How do we think through these things and have discussions and partnerships and linking arms in these things? Beginning to how do we navigate our times, not just God's word, but also how do we take God's word into our context and think in terms of how to walk and follow Jesus. So those are just a few of the opportunities for growing in your knowledge. And I want you to take advantage of those as though those come up to be a part of those. And then with one another, you'll be able to grow in your knowledge and speak truth to one another. That's just the sampling. But the second in, not, in loving, really what we do is we try to provide a context where we grow in our love. We often will say that as God has reconciled us to us vertically and we experience his love in Jesus Christ, that then extends horizontally. This is why the connection between love the Lord your God yourself and your neighbor as yourself. Sorry, love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. And so we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. There's a reason why it's vertical and then horizontal because those two have a symbiotic relation. You need, here's what I would say, you need community. You need to be in, in real relationships with other people where you're walking and following Jesus. And just like Paul did for me, you can speak truth, you can admonish, you can encourage, and you can link arms as you go together. As you stumble, you have others who come around you and support you. And so that's where we learn really what love looks like tangibly. We've been saying lately, not this idea abstractly, I love humanity, everyone, I love humanity. And then everywhere you look around, your neighbors are like, but I hate that guy and that guy. Her can't stand her, right? Like, we learn to love tangibly with our neighbors. And so learning, getting into real relationships where we learn to love, and then that works its way back up to experiencing in tangible ways God's love for us. I want to encourage you, if you're not, have you, as you hear in the next weeks, opportunities to get into community groups. As you hear of opportunities just to get involved with things that are going on here, avail yourself of those. And I know, here's what I'll say. I'm going to say the quiet thing out loud. I know a lot of us have done that, been there, done that, and something didn't go well. Here's, here's, what, I, here's what I've been thinking about a lot this summer, and I want, I want to, it'll come up in a few sermons from now. Don't allow what somebody did to you or around you rob you of what Jesus has done for you. And Jesus, what he's done is he has reconciled you to himself and to one another, and he wants you to have real robust, life-giving relationships. Don't allow whatever the past holds. Allow Jesus, trust him, and allow him to heal that. Take steps. There will also be things, I think there's a welcome brunch in a few weeks. If you're newer here and want to find out more avenues, join in that. There will be things like our basics class where you could look into becoming a member here at Anthem. I would encourage you to take, think about those in terms of that, how do I grow in love through tangibly learning to do that in a local context. Lastly, obedience. One of the reasons why we do things here at Anthem in terms of, like we have new diaconate initiatives, deacons and things that we're just getting ready to launch. If you're at the churchwide retreat, you heard a lot more details. I know this sounds abstract, but a lot of the things that are going on is we are equipping and sending out and identifying leaders in the body who are ready to lead us out in initiatives in terms of advocacy or like mercy ministries. Also in terms of member care, so think more internally as people have illness and needs in the body. Uh, also thinking in terms of as non-believers are coming into the church or visiting us here, just kind of like next steps and connection, missions and whatnot, and how to live missionally locally. We have different initiatives that are happening as well as women's and men's initiatives and whatnot. Uh, the reason why we invite you into these things is not just because, well, we want to put on some cool programs and everyone's got to help the machine go, right? The reason why we do this is because we believe that God has equipped you, he's called you, he's gifted you, and we believe that one of the ways, as we look at the retreat, one of the ways that the fruits of the Spirit are formed in us is by deploying our gifts of the Spirit with one another. 
and learning to work in the unity of the Spirit wherever God is calling us. And so one of the ways, in other words, that you grow as a disciple and you become reoriented from selfish living to selfless and sacrificial others-oriented living is that you take steps in the body of Christ to sacrifice time, energy, to grow a skill in order to serve others. And so I would encourage you as these initiatives are rolled out and you hear more about them, be looking or if you know of something that you're interested in, just underneath the lights afterwards, let them know. They can connect you with whoever. The reason why we do these things is not just so we can have cool programs and do stuff out there and just get, just do things. Part of the reason why we do this is this is how God sends out his body in the midst of it. It's the way that you grow as a disciple and you learn obedience. And then that goes into every aspect, permeates every aspect of your life, changes your disposition towards coworkers, changes your disposition towards your children, your spouse, and your family members. And so I would encourage you to take hold of those opportunities that are coming up. We want you to know, love, and obey Jesus. Jesus gives us these last words because this is what is most important in this last age of humanity that we would know his reign, that we would know him and follow him, and that we would growing in our knowledge of him and our love of him and our obedience to him because it's going to roll into eternity in his presence forevermore. So this is the most important thing, Anthony. Invest in this. It is our quest. It is the ultimate quest to find the one who is life, to know him, to love him, to obey him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Uh, Lord, we thank you again that um, it's not up to us to just make up a mission, <laughs> make up a purpose. It's not up to us then to just fight over that thing and let the one who's most persuasive or just the one who's the smartest or the one who's craftiest or the one who's most powerful, wealthiest, whatnot, get their way. But you've defined our purpose. You've defined our mission. And so, Lord, we thank you. Jesus, we thank you that now we, we read this knowing that you are ascended and you're on the throne and that your people, by your spirit now, are being mobilized, empowered for the, the work of the ministry. Jesus, we thank you for the privilege it is to join in this work, this work of you that you've started making all things new through your person and your work. Lord, will we see what a great privilege it is? Will we see what a great privilege it is to link arms of brothers and sisters around us? Will we just see big things in store? And Lord, will we submit ourselves to you? So Spirit, would you help us see what that next step might be from here? What that next thing to invest in, that next thing to get connected in? Would you guide us? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.